is the Next Trip Podcast with Aviation Insiders Doug and Drew. Together, with more than 40 years of industry experience, they are creating a network for other app geeks and travel enthusiasts to obsess about all things aviation. All thoughts and opinions are their own. Good day and welcome to Boarding Pass 220, operating on February 12, 2024. This is Drew, an airline ops manager and aspiring Cessna 172 pilot. And I'm here with my buddy, Doug, an airline pilot. We are here to discuss aviation topics from an industry insider's perspective. On this episode, Doug, we are literally all over the map. We're joined by a return guest, Ian, who when asked where he's from, his answer is yes. (laughs) (laughs) Doug, you first. I would say, I I normally say Doug is in a nondescript room someplace, but it's very descript and nice. You can tell us about it. I'm in Jacksonville. Not Florida, North Carolina. I didn't even know that that city existed. I apologize to anyone who might be from there who's from the area. I had no idea that there was a Jacksonville, North Carolina. Technically, I'm actually not in Jacksonville. I'm about an hour north. I'm out here for my KC-46 Sims. Drew and Ian, little airport, only three gates. was actually really nice. It looks like they rebuilt the terminal or built a brand new terminal probably in the last couple of years. Big windows, very, very bright, very nice terminal. Unfortunately, really not a lot to do there. When I was waiting for my rental car yesterday, that's a whole story I'm not even going to talk about. <laughs> you told me, well, maybe you can go to a Centurion Club or, or something. Drew, mm-hmm. this this airport has three <laughs> gates. It's for a city of 100,000 people. There is no Centurion Club that I can just go hang out at at Jacksonville Airport, North Carolina. It's a single runway, one single runway. And I flew in on a Delta MD-95 or 717, uh-huh. whatever you want to call it. That is the only mainline flight the entire day. I was on the one mainline flight into this little city the entire day. First of all, welcome in. Thank you. There probably is no lounge in an airport whatsoever. Not even a concession stand, is it? I don't know what is inside of security because it was really late when I got in. Everything was closed and I just walked straight out. But the only thing that's outside of security is a little sundries store. Not even a restaurant. It's basically if you want to book in a granola bar, that's what you can buy. I had to sit and wait there for three hours yesterday for a rental car, which I ended up not getting. Long story, maybe I'll tell it if I feel like going through the pain again of yesterday. <laughs> really nice airport, but there's not there's nothing there. And there's one flight that comes in maybe every two or three hours. That's about it. And tell us about your Descript room, because it looks kind of fancy. You have a KC-135 model and a sectional couch. This this looks very fancy. For some reason, they put me in the general's suite. There are a couple uh-huh. of these. It, it must be the low season for general travel, because I'm definitely not a general and never aspire to be. But I'm in this, I don't know, I almost that picture when you watch movies with like generals and they have their whole staff around and everyone's got computers out and everyone's on phone calls. I feel like this is the room where that would be happening. So I guess maybe I'm I'm doing that a little bit since I'm <laughs> podcasting from here, <laughs> just not uh, saving the world. I mentioned this on the podcast. So you are a major, so you should at least like it. The Marriott, you should be on the upgrade list. So you, I guess you were on the upgrade list for a general room. Apparently. Apparently, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think I was the only person who actually stayed in this building last mm-hmm. night. Yeah. So I was telling Ian, the three of us, this whole episode can be about our trips to our destination. So we'll keep it short. You're at OAJ. To be honest, I had never heard of that city code. And I've been working for the airlines for over 30 years. OAJ, Jacksonville, North Carolina. And you talked about it. Let's talk about everywhere that we've been. Ian, I'm one more thing. And then I want to hear all about yours because you guys had a Mm -hmm. fantastic trip. I was on a 757 from LA to Atlanta on the way out here. The atmospheric river or the pineapple express Uh as what the weather channel or the the weather service was calling this particular atmospheric river. It was done by the time I left up up in Northern California. It It had moved through, but it was still really pretty heavy down in Southern California. When we took off out of LA, we took off to the east. That was my first time as a passenger ever taking off to the east at LAX. I've landed to the east as a pilot, but I've never actually, as a passenger, landed or taken off to the east. So that was kind of interesting. But we took off in the first probably 30 minutes. It was borderline severe turbulence. We were bouncing around a lot. I actually heard some gasps from people behind us. Drew, you would have loved it. I know you love turbulence. It was and in a 757, it, you, and I was sitting towards the back, so I just saw the whole cabin moving. Mm-hmm. It was it was actually pretty cool. Mm-hmm. But as soon as we got out of the clouds and it smoothed out, the captain came on the PA and goes, well, folks, I don't know about you, but that was the first time I've ever flown through an atmospheric river. Uh-huh. I just started laughing. It's like, 
Yeah, <laughs> uh, you, you must not get to California there much, dude. Right. <laughs> well, I'm sure it's a Delta pilot, so I'm sure that he on the pirate he wrote reported severe chop. Is that a thing? Yeah. <laughs> heavy chop. <laughs> Very heavy chop. Yes. <laughs> Okay, I think you briefly mentioned or, or glazed over it in the opening that you guys are sitting in Hong Kong right now. I'm curious about your travel plans and how you got there. You went west to go east to get to East Asia. Tell me yes. about this. So to get to Hong Kong from Los Angeles, as one does. Uh, we well, went first of all, you went. You went to. You live in Washington D.C. and you yeah. went to Los Angeles. <laughs> yeah, you could have so gone. You, there are multiple different ways that you could have gone. I think you chose aside from going through like Cape Town or Johannesburg or Santiago. <laughs> I think you, you went probably the longest or the, the more strangest way. Than the one we took. <laughs> yes. yes. <laughs> um, so we'll. I'll have Ian explain the whole thing, and it, it makes when you when you hear it, it will make absolute sense. But before that, I added LAX to the trip because Lara from the Non-Rev Lounge, shout out to Lara, she was having her birthday on February 3rd at LAX at the Proudbird. Ian and I met in Los Angeles. I said, let's just start our trip there. So we had a great time. We met Lara, a bunch of people, uh, Steve Tao, who we'll speak about later in this episode, and of course, Tyler, Monique, the whole crew. So that was a lot of fun. Ian, where did you come from? I came from Singapore, the long way. Oh my gosh, I didn't know that. Ian doesn't know if he's coming or going, honestly. No, yeah. Honestly, yeah. Drew, Drew told me, book a one-way ticket to Los Angeles. I don't care how you get here, be here on this date. Right. And I, and I made it. Those clowns, they didn't even know that he was coming. I just showed, they, they knew the day of because you just... I've blurted it out. Yep. <laughs> so we went to Laura Fist. Okay, I'm going to have Ian explain how, how our trip from LAX to Hong Kong via Munich and Zurich. I always tell you this when you're talking about your fabulous trips and work to all the places you go every week. We will keep it two minutes. Ian will keep it two minutes, hopefully. And you can, you can cut us off whenever you want. The clock starts now. Tell me about <laughs> okay, it, Ian. So, so I, want, I wanted to try something that I have never tried before. And what options are there? I've tried a lot, so... I'm not trying A380 on the Danza on in the business class. Let's do that first. We did that, hoping we get it. We got it in the end. It was interesting because Lufthansa claimed that they were going to retire their A380s, but apparently they brought it back because, you know, I guess demand for travel has, is that great. So we flew to Munich. Then we're like, since we are on a roll with four engines, let's keep it going. What else? Can we do? <laughs> yep, that's how that's how this came to be. Store. Yes. So we're like, is a 747 flying to Asia right now? What options do we have? And we're, we're flying non-rev, so it's, it's a little bit tricky and with the loads and everything like that. So we're like, let's throw a dart at the board and see where we can go. And we found out that uh, from Zurich, there was a flight on Swiss A340-300, which I have never flown on before. So I was like, let's do this. But the question was, how do we get to Zurich? There we go. <laughs> that's another issue. Well, we figured it out. We flew another Z fare from, from uh, Munich to Zurich. Yep. On an A319, mm-hmm. but they got us th- that got us there, and then we, we did not even know if we are going to make that flight, because we, we had the option of going to Hong Kong or Singapore, but the Singapore is on the 777-300ER. We all fly that, so that's not... It's nothing new. Yeah, nothing new. Yeah. So we stuck with the A340. At the very end, we got seats. But while we were waiting, it was interesting, because we were at the gate, and we saw a Sao Paulo flight across from us. Mm-hmm. I, I was asking Drew... What if we go to what? What if we end up in Sao Paulo? <laughs> like we, we, were just, we, were just, we were just sitting there talking about it, right? And later on, when we got to Hong Kong, oh, yeah, we found yeah. out that so our buddy Martin Doug, that always watches the show and contributes, mm-hmm. was working a flight across the hall, literally. Oh no way! Yeah, I mean, we were so busy with stuff, I didn't even think to text him. We have communicated with him. He's in Sao Paulo. This is Ian's first non-rev trip with me and as one does he got business class all the way from la to hong kong beginner's luck that's awesome yeah Yeah. so i did not think i you know i was like from la to munich we were pretty sure we got it we were gonna get it so we got the upper deck on the 380 can i say something about that upper deck yeah i was so busy with getting out the door for my trip i wasn't Mm -hmm. tracking closely what airplane type you guys were on and you sent a picture from the upper deck on that 380 i thought you were on a 340 
That's what it looks like. <laughs> that is so funny. That's what it looks like on the inside. What we talking about? Yeah, we were, we were just talking about it in the cabin. Like this looks exactly like an A three forty. Yes, the, the overhead the bins, is, the the, yep. the overhead bins, the width of the cabin. Yep. I thought you guys were on an A three forty six hundred. That's what I thought you guys were on, just based on the cabin photos that you sent. And the and thing is, right below us is a whole big economy class cabin, right. <laughs> wider cabin. We were like, we should do a tour of the whole plane. We didn't. I mean, we were just comfortable. <laughs> <where we were. laughs> Why would you leave your castle? Come on. Yeah, and then Zurich, Hong Kong. I mean, it was only a handful of business class seats. We were expect. We were just hoping to get on that flight, mm-hmm. but we got seats together. So I'm thinking we're going to talk about this plane a little bit more in another segment, but they had five seats open in first class. They still have a first class cabin. So they must have moved people up to first because not only did we get seats, we got seats together. And I got to tell you, both Lufthansa and Swiss, they were awesome. And we did the non-rev lounge. Shout out to non-rev lounge. They recommend that we buy a little treat for the flight attendants. Not only did we buy a treat, we went to Seas Chocolate, which Doug, you know, is probably the best chocolate in the world. It's from California. And I chose out my favorite ones. So we brought them these. Oh, my God. I'm giving chocolate to Germans and Swiss. <laughs> Are they going to throw this in the trash? They're probably going to throw this in the trash. But they loved it. And we got such good service. Do you remember what her first comment was from the purser? She said, we are used to eating chocolates. But what was her first comment to you? I can't remember. Oh, my God. It's so colorful. What'd you pick for us? Oh, yeah. I picked a whole variety of stuff. So they really enjoyed it. They didn't throw in the trash. They didn't throw the American chocolate in the trash. So I guess it's acceptable. I want Ian to tell you about, on the trip, other than the flights, the whiskey bar at Zurich. We went to the Schengen area the Swiss lounge in the Schengen area. And we didn't know if we were getting the lounge at all because, you know, we're flying non-revenue. We talked to the lounge agents and they eventually let us in. But they were telling us, when you go to the E-gates, which is the international departures, you have to stop by the lounge. And we're like, why? And they're like, because there's a whiskey bar. <laughs> we go to the E-gates, not expecting anything. We get in there and we're like, oh my God, we have the world, a wall <laughs> of the world of whiskey. That's all we did. I think we were there for an hour and a half, and all we did was do whiskey tasting. That's amazing. At at a club? This was at the Swiss club? This was at the Swiss club. We just found out later after we've had, I don't know how many glasses of whiskey, that there's a balcony, a terrace outside the E-gates where you can actually see the aircraft, and lo and behold, our aircraft, our A340-300 was right down there. Yeah, it was like at your house. Like you're in a condo and you have a balcony and you're overlooking these planes. Oh my God, Martin, if you're listening to this episode or anyone listening, if you're no. in Zurich, go to this E-Swiss lounge because within that is this whiskey bar. It's called 28-10 because that's one of their runways. The decor, the way they do the walls is the diagram of the aircraft runways and taxiways. That's really cool. And also a shout out to Lucy and your boyfriend who's listening to us. Oh yeah, Lucy was the bartender at the at the whiskey. His her boyfriend is uh, vaguely av geeky, so we think he might listen to this episode. <laughs> okay, but we've gone way long, so we went to Yardley's Tap Room, Doug, where we met Chris. Yes, yeah, that place is awesome. Right, but that's a problem. It is awesome. So we have a checklist of things we want to do in Hong Kong. We end up sitting there for three hours and talking to these complete strangers that kind of took us under their wing. So if they're listening, it's Swan and Mao. They were so cool. Word of advice, do not take culinary recommendations from a 23-year-old because we wanted to have great Hong Kong food. He took us to a burger joint, which was delicious, but this is not typical Hong Kong food. When you texted me that, that reminded me of when I was in Beijing. I wanted to get dim sum, some great Chinese food, and we ended up at a barbecue joint. (laughs) Yeah. It was great barbecue, but I didn't go to Beijing for barbecue. (laughs) But listen to this. This is how multicultural. So this area that we were, I don't know how they found us. They just came up to us. Are you guys expats? I'm like, no. I mean, unless expat means that we are not from here and we're here now. I guess you have to be living here. Probably, yeah. Living and working here. Not from here. They were both born in Hong Kong. Mao and Swan. Mao is Japanese background. Her parents are Japanese. But she was born here. And then Swan, his parents are Indian. Specifically North Indian. North Indian, but he was born here. So they both consider themselves locals. Can I ask you what accent, what what accent do you think that they had, Doug? Probably British. No, far from it. They had a Valley Girl accent. Yeah. No way. Yes. They both had solid American accents. You could take the younger guy, Swan, put him in the Midwest. They would think that he is from there. They probably grew up watching Beverly Hills, 90210, and Friends, yes, exactly. and and all those all those sitcoms. 
that's exactly what they said because we were like how did you learn english how, right. how did you learn all this and yeah like, did you oh, live yeah. there no like, just... no but i think they adjusted so they have once in a while you'd hear a british accent and once in a while an australian accent i think they gauged it to us so that we would understand what they're saying i don't i don't know all right we've gone, <laughs> we've gone way long on this it's all good info all right guys i said i would give you two minutes i think that was about nine but it was yeah, all fascinating exactly. stuff so I, of course i wasn't going to cut you off we we joke about the timing but no way i was going to cut you off let's get back to those quad jets you guys flew two of them getting to hong kong that's our first topic namely the a340 it's an airplane we don't really talk about much ian has no, said that he had never flown on it very few are actually still in service around the world virgin had a slogan four engines for long haul which was used to promote their a340s against the competition flying 777s and a330s which now virgin doesn't have any quad jets and <laughs> so they have fun. a bunch of a3 a bunch of a330s yeah. yeah virgin has zero quad jets as the industry has moved to more efficient twin jets so that leaves swiss and edelweiss lufthansa mahan air of iran com air of afghanistan and convat conviasa of Venezuela. Obviously, I'd never heard of these airlines before. Still flying passenger A340s. So we flew an A340-300 named Schufhausen after a city in Switzerland. And its technical details are 4 CFM-56. And those are the same as the 737-NGs, right? If I'm not wrong. Mm -hmm. the it's, it's the same as all the 737s from the NG on. So you got four of them on, on, the, on that plane. And they produce a maximum thrust of 34,000 pounds of thrust. Passenger seats in, on that plane, only 215 seats. So that's a very, very premium heavy aircraft. Its maximum takeoff weight is 606,000 pounds and the maximum range of it is 6,500 miles. That's not too long. That's probably, I would say, East Asia to West Coast of the mm -hmm. U.S. Yeah, thereabouts. Roughly. I have a lot of concerns about these stats. They call the A340 a, a pig because it's so underpowered. I want to put it in, in terms that Doug can relate to. So it has 34,000 maximum pounds for a CFM 56 on each side. So that equates to 68,000 pounds. Doug, the company that we work for, the older 777s with the Pratt Winnie 4000s, how much thrust do those have? It's in the 70s, 70,000, 77,000, I think, and some change per engine. It's about the same size as an A340-300, so it's so yeah. underpowered. I was going to ask you guys about that, because every time I've flown an A340, I just remember how slow the climb seems uh, on the departure. Did you guys feel that at all? No, not we, really. We, we were in the middle of having fun. Yeah, I mean, okay. I remember... Yeah, you, you guys were a whiskey, a couple whiskeys uh, yeah. Yeah, we were several in, whiskey at that point. <laughs> well, yeah, no, but I, I honestly, I remember a very smooth takeoff. I thought it yeah. was reasonably quiet. The climb was very smooth. And then I want to talk about the passenger seats, only 215. Our company has a high J767 where the premium seats go all the way behind the wing. Doug, this is similar to that. First class, business class, premium economy, it goes behind the wing and then there's a small section of economy. So it's a very premium heavy aircraft. I guess, you know, Zurich to Hong Kong, that would be where you would get a lot of premium traffic. I mean, and, and it worked because the flight was almost full. You think about the Swiss and the banking industry that's in Switzerland and bankers, they're relatively wealthy, I would say, or their clients are paying a lot of money for them to do some of these trips. So it makes sense that they would have some of these high J configurations for flights, like you said, from Zurich to Hong Maybe Kong. Tokyo. I don't know. Have you heard about this? This happened recently. It was the Lufthansa 747-8 coming into Kennedy. They lost an engine not that far from Kennedy. And ATC, they told ATC and they asked them, are you declaring an emergency? And they're like, no, we're fine. We don't, we're not declaring an emergency. The controller asked them again, Sir, are you not declaring an emergency? You have an engine out? Like, no, no, we are fine. We are not declaring emergency. <laughs> I just think it's so cool because they have so many engines and they're like, they have procedures. They don't want the emergency equipment. They don't want to make a big deal about it. We asked the crew on this flight, <laughs> if you have four engines, if you have one of them fail, are you declaring an emergency? And they did say, yes, we would say, Pam, Pam. What does that mean? Pam. Pan, pan. And they would say, yeah. lost an engine, and they would ask for the emergency equipment. But apparently, that Lufthansa crew was so cool about it. They were like, no, we're fine. Pan, pan is just short of mayday. It's still an emergency, but it's it's less severe than a mayday. Mayday would be, we're on fire, we're going down, something really bad. Pan, pan is, hey, we have a problem. We need to get someone's attention. 
I've never heard it on the radio. I, mm. I Very few people probably ever have heard it on the radio, such that when you do hear it, everything stops. Everyone stops talking because whoever said it, that that's like, time out. I need priority. ATC knows to listen for it. Everyone else knows when you hear Pan Pan, mm-hmm. just like Mayday, you stop talking. Whatever you are dealing with at the time is nothing compared to what that airplane is going through. And it's it's just, it's a word or a couple of words strung together that stand out to everyone else. Like, hey, someone is in trouble. They need priority. That's why I use that word. The Lufthansa 747, this is actually a really great idea for an ops topic coming up because you guys yeah. flew to Asia from Europe, which means you went over the Himalayas. We have, they're called train critical depressurization routes uh-huh. because if we lose an engine, actually I can use yesterday's sim as an example. We lost an engine, so we had to descend down to 10,000 feet. That's basically the procedure that you do. Or if you're not able to maintain cabin altitude, if you depressurize, you go down to 10,000 feet because that's where mm-hmm. people can breathe without oxygen if the airplane right. is not pressurized. What is the height of Mount Everest. Uh, isn't it like 20,000 feet? 29,000 feet. The average height of the Himalayas are in the, the mid-20s. You mm. can't go down to 10,000 feet. And when you're in a super heavy airplane, like when, when I take off on a 777-300, if I were to lose an engine right when I get to level off, the lowest or the highest altitude that I would be able to maintain is probably about 20, 21,000 feet. And our box, actually, we can click a button and it tells us, and we have to do what's called a drift down, which is where you just slowly start to to descend until you get to the maximum altitude that with whatever thrust you have remaining and the weight of the airplane, that is the altitude that you can maintain. You can't can't stay any higher, otherwise you would lose airspeed. When you're flying over the Himalayas with an average height in the mid-20,000s, you cannot stay above the mountains if you're super heavy at a certain point. So there are actually these routes that go through the valleys. And when you're flying over those areas, Greenland has it, the Andes have it. There are Mm -hmm. these routes that you have to fly that you can guarantee terrain clearance if okay. you're unable to guarantee it based on an altitude that you're at. We, we can get more in depth in that, but just really interesting topic considering you guys flew over the Himalayas in a quad jet. Well, before we go to the next topic, basically moral of the story with uh, an engine out on uh, 747-8 with GE NX. NX engines, you lose one engine, you're like, yeah, we're fine. We don't need fire trucks. We have our procedures. Uh, with the, CF, with, uh, the A340-300, with four underpowered Conair hairdryer CFM engines, you lose an engine, that's what you need. You do need assistance because you don't have a lot of power left. <laughs> exactly. All right, guys, let's go from four CFM 56 engines for the long haul to two 737 CFM engines for short haul. Let's check out the latest riveting 737 news. Here, I like what you did with the word riveting. Yeah, there. sorry. <laughs> a preliminary report from the NTSB states that it appears four critical bolts were missing from the door plug of the Alaska 737-9 of the door that blew out. The plug was removed at Boeing's factory before being reinstalled. Photos show that the bolts required to hold the plug in place appeared to be missing. And I think they figured that out based on scratch mm-hmm. patterns from where the door left. There were no uh-huh. scratch patterns on this spot where the bolts were supposed to be. This week, another problem arose with Boeing finding two misdrilled holes on 50 737 Maxes. Spirit Aero Systems acknowledged the errors and is fixing the problem. On the bright side, the FAA said on Tuesday that 94% of affected 737 Maxes have been inspected and are back in service. The FAA has stepped up its regulation of Boeing with... New administrator Mike Whittaker saying, Going forward, we will have more boots on the ground closely scrutinizing and monitoring production and manufacturing activities. He also said that the Alaska door plug incident raises two questions. One, what's wrong with this airplane? But two, what's going on in production at Boeing? Hmm. Boeing CEO Calhoun has been outwardly open to the increased oversight, saying, I'm sort of glad they called out a pause because that's a good excuse just to keep just to take our time to do it right. Calhoun became CEO after Dennis Mullenberg was fired amid the fallout from the two 737 MAX 8 crashes that killed 346 people in 2018 and 2019. When Ian and I were talking about this, we assumed that he was there during the MCAS issues for the 737. But he was the fix-it guy. He hasn't really fixed it. 
it, they seem to be having the same quality control issues. Yeah, you would think that when he came in, these things would have changed. I think it's just this culture at Boeing. And I don't know how Boeing got here. I, I don't mm-hmm. know what led to it. There's been a lot of speculation among the aviation community, other pilots that fly with, other people who are saying that a lot of it stems from the mid-2000s when a, a lot of really experienced engineers were given the option for early retirement. And you, you mm-hmm. lost a lot of brain power. And a lot of new people came in and didn't really have that mentorship of right. some of the older people. Because you you had this brain drain, you had a lot of people who retired, who were given early outs, who left the company. Because if you think about it, the mid-2000s, they call that the lost decade of aviation. That's when no airlines were hiring, not a lot of airlines were actually buying airplanes, not a lot of development in the industry. Post-9-11, Iraq War, oil crisis, all those things, then the financial crisis, the whole decade of the 2000s was like the year of COVID only stretched out over an entire decade where you had furloughs at all these airlines. Airplanes were grounded all over the world because there wasn't quite the demand for it. And Boeing, just like the airlines did during COVID, was trying to cut costs. They let people go because they're not building as many airplanes. It wasn't until about 2010, 2011 that the industry really started to recover and and take off again. You had an entire decade of experience walking out the door at Boeing. And I think that is what slowly started to lead to this to this cost-cutting measure, just to the inexperience, to yeah. all of this. We were very happy when they picked an FAA administrator with some nuts and bolts experience with the aviation industry. I haven't done the research on Calhoun. I don't know if he's a guy with a business degree. If not, I think they need to look at someone who has an engineering degree, possibly, or someone who's an expert in safety. Jal, their new CEO, was the vice president of the in-flight department, and she was a flight attendant. You think she knows a little bit about safety and evacuation and all that stuff? I think you need, especially now, I think Boeing needs someone who is from that field, because it's literally, I mean, it is literally about the nuts and bolts. (laughs) That's not just a term. It is about nuts and bolts with Boeing. Boeing, Boeing CEOs historically had been engineers, had worked for the company, had mm-hmm. worked on the floor, had had done all of that. Recently, in the last probably 15, 20 years, they went away from that and they went more to the lawyer mm-hmm. or business. Well, I, think Cal, I think Calhoun was a lawyer, if I remember correctly. Okay. And now, how much longer does <laughs> Calhoun have? If, he, if he's unable to fix this, how much longer does he have? I think it, right. like you said, yeah, I, I think it needs to be more of that engineering mindset leading the company. Yeah. At least for now, because that's what they need right now. They need to go back to the basics. Doug, moving from uh, Seattle or Chicago or Arlington, Virginia, wherever Boeing is based, <laughs> um, moving back to Europe, a strike by ground workers at Lufthansa may cripple the airline's operations this week. As we tape this, it is the 7th of February, and today in Europe, they may be on strike as we speak. The Verdi Union, this includes ground handling workers at Frankfurt and other airports, said Monday it is calling on-ground staff for the German airline at Frankfurt, Munich, Hamburg, Berlin, and Dusseldorf airports to strike from 4 a.m., on the 7th of February, and it will last 27 hours. Lufthansa projects that it will have to cancel more than 80% of its flights because of striking ground workers and admin staff. The hubs in Munich and Frankfurt will be hit particularly hard. If flights are canceled, uh, apparently Lufthansa may book you on Deutsche Bahn on a train ticket if it's someplace you can get to that their, their ticket was for. So the union is seeking a 12.5% pay raise or at least an extra 500 euro a month. In the negotiations, nearly 25,000 employees, including check-in, aircraft handling, maintenance, and freight staff. I mean, these are like people who work for it who are our friends. They're the Patricks. They are the Tylers, similar to people that we, we know. Lufthansa says it expects extensive effects on its flight program on the 7th and 8th of February as a result. Drew, do you remember what happened when we boarded our flight in Munich? Yeah. The captain came on and said, good news, we all fully boarded, ready to go, doors closed. Bad news, our bags are not loaded, and we have no idea when they will be loaded. <laughs> That's literally what you said. The bags are not loaded, and we don't. We have no idea when they're being... Everyone knew that the strike was imminent. But Doug, you said this happens all the time. The Europeans are just used to this with their train workers, with their airlines. It's just something that they work around. Yeah, air traffic control a lot goes on strike, especially in France. I've been caught up in several of these strikes 
in the the few years that I've been flying to Europe, whether it's the the ground staff. I think a year and a half ago, I was there when a lot of the ground staff were striking, and it was uh, a lot of the Lufthansa flights were canceled. We were able to get in, but Lufthansa mm-hmm. had to cancel. And I I know we talked last month about my trip down to the castles in the Alps mm-hmm. and how initially I was supposed to be on Deutschbahn and Deutschbahn went on strike. Europeans are just used to it. In the US, we have the Railway Labor Act, which is what all of the transportation unions fall under, which was put in place back in the 1920s to avert this from happening in the US, yeah. to avert these these massive disruptions to travel. There's this whole yeah. period that before anyone can strike, they, they have to go through mediation, then they have to go through a mm-hmm. 30-day cooling off period. And there, there's there's right. this whole thing where when, when you hear people threatening to strike in the US, it's very, very, very rarely ever going to actually happen and disrupt the industry like it does in Europe. Well, as we saw, I think it was the Amtrak workers. I can't remember exactly who. I think, no, it was the freight. It was the freight, tra- freight, the freight trains about two years ago. Right. And, you know, if they don't come to an agreement, like they're supposed to, they're supposed to they kind of push them together to come to an agreement. Congress can impose an agreement on them. How can you go on strike? And I think the president, I mean, that's the end of the line. The president. He or she could order them back to work. So that's why in the U.S. Yeah, we don't. American, American went on strike. I think it was in the, the mid 80s and Reagan would have been the president then. Mm-hmm. Reagan forced them to go back to work. They yes. went on strike at midnight, and by 5 a.m. or 6 a.m., Reagan had yeah. forced them to go back to work. Continuing with the news, this is actually really fascinating what we're about really to talk is. about here. There might be a breakthrough on a story we discussed months ago. Drew, forget the D.B. Cooper stairs. We might be referring to them as the Vince Peterson <laughs> stair- <laughs> stairs soon. As a reminder, on November 21st, 1971, a man who would become known as D.B. Cooper hijacked a Northwest Airlines flight and parachuted out of the plane at 10,000 feet with $200,000 strapped to his waist. Cooper vanished into the night with all his belongings, except for a handful of cigarettes and a J.C. Penny clip-on tie that was left behind on his seat. He was never seen or heard from again. We may now have a suspect who fits the description of D.B. Cooper and has a connection to Boeing and Seattle. Conducting further, further analysis of those particles, independent investigator Eric Eulis traced some of the rarest elements back to the now-defunct specialty facility in Pittsburgh called Crucible Steel. Ulysses described the company as a significant subcontractor all throughout the 1960s that supplied the iron's share of titanium and stainless steel for Boeing's aircraft. The investigator and researcher told the outlet that he believed these findings point to the company's titanium research engineer, Vince Peterson, who died in 2002 as the identity of Cooper. I can put him in Seattle. I can put him at Boeing, Ulysses said. He's a compelling person of interest. Peterson, who worked at Incusable's Pittsburgh-based Titanium Research Laboratory, he died in 2002 at 83. Could this be him? So I saw a picture of this guy, and he does kind of look like the D.B. Cooper. Like the same height, Caucasian male. He was in his 50s. That's how they describe D.B. Cooper. So they could be getting close to finding who this is. Vincent Cooper's family says that if they can get what information the FBI has, they could be able to confirm it in 10 minutes. But the FBI is not a department that acts very quickly to to reveal any information. But they might be onto something, Doug. The 50th anniversary of this was just a couple years ago. And I listened to a podcast, a couple part podcast that delved into the whole investigation. And this is probably the 20 or 25th person of interest that has been identified uh-huh. Who knows? We'll see. And if the FBI, like you said, does share some of the information, then maybe we'll we'll get closer to an answer. But it's been so long, and there there is very little of a chance that whoever D.B. Cooper actually was is still alive if he mm-hmm. didn't perish the night that he parachuted out of the back of the 727. Yeah. I almost wonder, the conspiracy theorist in me wonders if the FBI never really wants to solve this, mm. just so that it's one of those mysteries that, that keeps keeps things going and keeps that the the story relevant well yeah and i i think we need to catch people up on uh, the stairs so we call them the db cooper stairs because this db cooper opened the rear stairs of a 727 there were the ventral stairs back of the plane where you could use those stairs to board and deplane so he he knew how to open those stairs yeah 
which indicates that he had some understanding of Boeing products. And the other thing is D.B. Cooper. That's the name we use because that's what he put on his ticket. But back then, they didn't verify ID. That's how I got away. That's how I got away. For our upsetter, heading back to Asia, where we are, let's discuss something that our friend Brittany saw in her travels. She said, what's KLM Asia? What is it, guys? KLM Asia and British Airways Asia were subsidiaries created to fly to Taipei so as not to upset mainland China, which does not recognize Taiwan as a country. Let's take a look at which airlines do or do not openly recognize Taiwan as a country in their websites. So for Cathay Pacific... They say Taipei, Taiwan, China. Mm-hmm. Singapore Airlines says Taipei, <laughs> Taiwan, China. Qantas, Taipei, Taiwan, China. British Airways, Taipei, Taiwan, China. Okay. United, however, Taipei. Just no country Taipei. listed. Same with Delta, Taipei. For Japan Airlines and ANA, they say Taipei, East Asia. Air India and Malaysia Airlines both say Taipei, Taiwan. <laughs> Thai Airways says Taipei, Taiwan, China, like the rest. Uh-huh. Swiss says Chinese Taipei. KLM, Taiwan, China. Hmm. It's so confusing. So apparently the Indians and the Malaysians don't care if they upset China. They just call it Taipei. What do they say? Taipei, Taiwan. Not even China. But you know what? The first few, Cathay Pacific, Singapore, Qantas, Taipei, Taiwan, China, which actually should make everyone happy because Taiwan also believes they are the real China. They can read it that way if that's the way they want to hear it. I would just say that's the most politically correct answer. Mm, yeah. I always thought that it had something to do with the fact that there was a crown on the livery, both British Airways and KLM. KLM mm-hmm. Asia, they remove the crown on the tail, and all right. it says is KLM Asia. And I, uh, I was always under the impression that it had something to do with the monarchies because the, the Dutch uh, actually still have a king and that they didn't want to offend some of the countries that they were flying to that had once been ruled by those monarchies. And they were they were just trying to <laughs> a, appease the people and, and say, hey, we're no. we're no longer we're no longer your oppressors. No. We are. <laughs> no, I mean, that kind of makes sense. But KLM was still flying to. All these other every single country without having to use KLM Asia, so they created this smoke and mirrors KLM Asia, K, uh, British Airways Asia, that was based in Taiwan, so that they think it's a separate airline. But to be honest, you know, it was just trying to appease China. They still had the same crews flying these planes. It wasn't like the crews who flew the KLM Asia planes. They weren't separate crews. They were the same crews. The companies itself, like KLM Asia, was actually, like the aircraft itself was actually registered in Taiwan. The company was registered in Taiwan. Just that aircraft. Hmm. Just the aircraft. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But the crews weren't based in Taiwan. So how do you explain when, when airlines, they lease out planes, like wet lease planes, where mm-hmm. it's a different crew, but operating for a different carrier? Well, I don't think anyone cares. But in this case, they wanted to show that it was not based in, that was, it was separate somehow. But do you notice like Cathay Pacific, Singapore Airlines, Qantas, those who put Taipei, Taiwan, China, they were ex-British colonies. Right. And I don't think they flew... <clears throat> Except Malaysia. Malaysia is the odd one. Out. Right. That's good. So that's a good point because they did not fly KLM Australia or British Airways Australia. Oh, look at this. Look at it this way. Cathay Pacific, Singapore Airlines, Qantas never had an Asia component to it. No. The only ones that had an Asia component, as far as we know, are KLM, Asia and British Airways. I think Swiss Asia, I think Swiss had Asia Airways in it at some point. I just looked it up, this crown thing. I was mm-hmm. partially right. It was because of Taipei. This is from Airways Magazine a couple years ago. It says, the first most significant modi- modification in KLM Asia's livery is the removal of the Royal Dutch crown from KLM's logo, both in the tail and the front part of the fuselage which is substituted with the word Asia. The crown is one of the most iconic symbols, not only of the airline, but also of the entire Netherlands. And being this symbol is a political sign, it was necessary for KLM to remove it before commencing operations to Taipei. It was removed because of the the politics and because the crown symbolized the politics of it. But it was for Taipei, which is why they did it. Interesting. That's a good tidbit there. Which means we'll see KLM Asia all around the world, except in China. Not in China. Yeah. Let's get to our uh, contributor messages. Doug, we keep talking too long, and then we don't have time for it, so we are going to find time on this episode. Our first message is from Ryan in San Francisco. He's commenting on the landing pattern change thanks to the wind shifts caused by El Nino. Let's listen. Hi, my name is Ryan, and I 
live in Northern California. It's very rainy and blustery Sunday morning today um, on February 4th. And I'm watching Flight Radar 24. We're at SFO. Things have hit the fan. There's lots going go, go around, and they're landing on a 10 left. Um, and so that made me wonder if Doug has ever landed on 10 left or 10 right. And uh, if that uh, throws him for a loop even if a little bit. Um, and what other conditions uh, aircraft might uh, have to land on 10 left and right. Okay, well, that's it. It's uh, kind of an exciting day, at least for our geeks. Bye. All right, Ryan. No, I have never actually landed on the 10s. I've taken off. I, I've landed on the 2.8s. I've landed on the 1.9s. I have never landed on the 1s, and I've never landed on the 10s. When you have to land on the 1s or the 10s, that is a really, really bad day. And luckily, I have missed that. I know once or twice a year it does happen in San Francisco, but I've been fortunate enough to never have to do that. Just to paint a picture, the 10s are the ones, if you're landing on the 10s, you're flying right over 101, right over the 101 freeway on approach, and then landing on the ones. When I was in high school and I could drive and I heard that the winds were bad and they, at SFO they were landing on the ones, I would cut school and I would go to SFO because that is like a Hong Kong <laughs> That was like a high-tech approach into SFO coming over Millbrae and 101. That was amazing. But like you said, very rare. We got mixed feedback on a response to Steve's concern about the overly casual attire in premium cabins. Our buddy Aaron didn't agree with us. This is what he said. As someone who never flies business or first class, I think people should wear whatever they want. Bringing their own pillow to the airport may be a bit much, but if people want to do that, why should it bother anyone else? I don't relate to the dressing to show respect concept. It's not a funeral. It's you paying lots and lots of money to fly comfortably. And one shouldn't be bothered by others not dressing nicely. If others smell bad or are noisy, that's another story. That's my two cents. Maybe I'm to the point where I'm an old guy who likes some things kept the same. When you're traveling in first or business class or when you were traveling, I, st I still remember the days, Doug, when you wore your Sunday best not only when you're traveling on the plane, but to meet people that are coming in on a plane at the airport. You wanted to look nice because people dress nice for travel. And now it's gotten to a point where they wear stuff that you wouldn't wear to a grocery store. They wear pajamas. They wear flip-flops. And I don't like it. So Aaron is saying we shouldn't judge. And he's right. But I will give you an example. When, and I was completely okay with it. And I was the, I was the one being judged. So this was... LAX, 1994, mid-90s. I'm getting ready to fly British Airways, and I don't have my seat yet. I'm dressed to the nines. I'm wearing a tie. I'm wearing slacks, nice shoes. The agent comes around with her radio, looks me over, completely judging me. Looks me over, up and down. He's like, okay for Jay, which means she approved me for business. So I'm used to that. Is it right? I don't know. I just, I just feel like when you're going someplace, rest, dress respectably. Go ahead and dress comfortably, but dress respectably. How do you guys feel? If you go to a McDonald's, you would dress a certain way. In fact, any way you want to. And if you go to a fine dining establishment, which is probably like five times more than what McDonald's costs, take that and put that from, into a passenger point of view. When hmm. you buy economy class, you can board the plane, dress however way you want. However, your fellow passengers probably paid five times the cost of economy class to be in that particular cabin you're in. Same thing with the restaurant. You dress appropriately for mm. the cabin that you're in. Even if it's not what you're going to wear throughout the flight, at least mm. boarding and while landing. What I would say is if airlines provide pajamas, which a lot of them do on long enough flights, that is in a way them expecting you to be wearing something that you don't want to sleep in mm -hmm. right okay yeah that's and they point. are giving they are giving you something that you can sleep in mm -hmm. and then after you sleep you can change back into whatever it was that you were wearing that was not very comfortable to sleep in that exactly. that's what i would say i didn't realize that's that this that steve's call would actually create so much of a stir <laughs> among our contributors all right, we've got another listener call. This is Ruth in Colorado Springs, and she also had some feedback regarding attire on aircraft. Ruth from Colorado Springs. You were talking about um, dressing and people in first class. It reminded me of a story I heard from my aunt and uncle just this last year. My uncle is a former executive with Northwest. He's in his 90s now. They traveled a lot, and of course, um, flew first class. Um, my aunt told me that as they would travel, they would be waiting in 
a club, so to speak, before boarding the plane. And somebody from the airline would come into the club, check their attire before allowing them on the plane. Of course, they were, he was wearing a shirt and tie, suit coat. She was always in a dress, stockings, and heels. Recently, we returned from Brazil on an overnight flight. I did wear leggings, but I was dressed in a nice top and a jacket that looked appropriate. I wanted to be able to sleep comfortably. And I was wearing Havaianas on my feet on the plane throughout the whole trip. Thanks, guys. Bye. Thanks, Mom, for calling in. And I actually have a photo of her sleeping that my dad took of her in her seat. Uh-huh. Don't worry, we won't post it. <laughs> but she does look comfortable in what she's wearing. I, I will say that. She's talking about a vice president and his family that are getting ready to fly. It sounds like this is an executive for Northwest. They made sure to dress properly. And this is someone who's a leader in the company that should be able to do whatever they want. But they were still respectful of their fellow passengers and the Northwest product. To be dressed nicely. And I, I know we're not in that age, but can we keep some things the, cha- the same? And the other thing is, let me. so Aaron is in California and in Southern California. It's a different perspective in Southern California. When we went out to dinner with uh, Aaron, it was myself and Francis and Aaron. Francis and I, East Coast, we kind of dressed up. We wore, wore a collared shirt, nice pants. Aaron wore a t-shirt and jeans. But that in California, that's okay. A lot of people in the restaurant were. So it's yeah. a different look at Steve Jobs. Steve Steve Jobs right. made the t-shirt and jeans look cool. I think we might have talked about this a couple of years ago, Drew. I went to a conference, a kind of a techie conference in Austin. And uh-huh. ahead of time, with all the information about this conference, they gave us the dress code for each of the different days. Multiple of the days that I was there, the dress code was Silicon Valley casual. What is that? I had to actually look that up and see what Silicon Valley casual meant. It basically was like the Steve Jobs look. That was right. that was the dress code for a couple of the days. So as you said, it really just depends on where you're from, what industry you're in, and what has become the norm for that industry. Speaking of acceptable attire for travel, we're all traveling this week. What's everyone wearing? And more, most importantly... How are we all getting home? Ian, you first. Tomorrow, I'm heading to Ho Chi Minh City in Vietnam, uh, Cathay Pacific. Drew is leaving early in the morning, but my flight doesn't leave until 4 p.m., so you know what that means. A whole day in the lounges. How does he do that? (laughs) And in Hong Kong as well, so I'll be lounge hopping the whole day. After that, I'll be heading to Singapore and Vietnam Airlines, if I'm not wrong. Yes, Doug, how are you getting home? Uh, I go back to Jacksonville after my sim tonight, and then I'm flying back through Atlanta. I'm on an MD-95 again tomorrow morning, mm-hmm. bright and early or dark and early tomorrow morning. A couple hours to club hop in Atlanta, and then I'm on a 737-900 back to Sacramento. And then hopefully I'll be meeting my mom at the airport. She's supposed to non drive tomorrow. Loads look good. I think she'll be fine. All right, so I'll be taking the long way back to the U.S. I'm going from here to Delhi tomorrow on Vistara. I have never flown them, so I'm really excited. I had to buy a revenue ticket, Doug, because the, it's Chinese New Year. So there's flights out of Hong Kong are full. I'm flying to Delhi. I'll be there for three days. Then I'm flying Fin Air. So it was quad jets coming here. It's all twin jets going back. So it's back to present day type aircraft. So I'll be flying <laughs> Fin Air. <laughs> A Finnair A330 and a Fin to Helsinki and a Finnair A350 to London Heathrow because why not? Why take one flight to London when you can take two? And I'll be meeting one of our contributors who you've met, Dave from Manchester, will meet me in mm-hmm. Helsinki. We'll ha- hang out in Helsinki and London. And then I'll be taking a company 767 300 back home to DC. It'll be a huge variety, a variety of airplanes and friends along the way. So I'm glad we were able to, to have uh, one hour. With yours, you're out of town, I'm out of town, but we were able to still get this episode out for the contributors on time. Yep. Can I just bring up the fact that you flew to Hong Kong and you're flying back to DC and you are not crossing the Pacific Ocean once in this trip? Well, that's interesting you said that because on the airshow map, when we're landing in Hong Kong, I'm like, we've almost come full circle. We're at the Pacific Ocean, which LA is right across there. <laughs> You could probably see it on the map. It is, yeah. But, you, you, but you're not flying over at once on this trip. Not even once. Exactly. <laughs> That's crazy. Yeah. So, Ian, thanks for joining us on this uh, episode. It was nice spending time with you. Thanks for uh, your input. Anything else? 
thanks for bringing me on my first non-REM adventure. It was, I don't want to jinx it, but it was great. Ian, get your applications in. Come on, man. Yeah. What are you doing? <laughs> All right, get you, I'm working on it. Yeah, get your own tickets. Yep. <laughs> but this, this, is this is beginner's luck. This is Ian's understanding of non-rev. Non-revving is where you get seats together in business class, and that's how it works out. That's just that's just no normal non-revving. Like, he'll be broken in eventually, like all of us. To our friends and contributors, this podcast is your show, so go on our website, nextgroupnetwork.com, and let us know what's on your mind so we can talk about it or give us your feedback. You can also follow us on Instagram at Next Trip Podcast. Please tell your friends about us so we can reach more people who love aviation and travel. All right. I think we finally have the critical mass that we were asking for about our hotline. We're finally yes. getting people who oh. are calling in. I, I think that it, we just had to break that dam. And now that the dam is broken, hopefully we'll continue getting calls. Call the hotline, guys. The number is 872-529-5620 when calling from the U.S. Make sure to use country code 001 or plus one when calling from abroad. Ian, thanks for joining us. Good luck getting home. Actually, I think you're probably revenue going home, are you? Or are you not revving? Yeah. No, okay. revenue. Yeah. Well, have fun getting home then. Drew, look forward to hearing about all your other adventures next week. And yep. enjoy whatever time you have left in Hong Kong. I know you guys are going to go out a little bit more tonight. Enjoy it. Yep. I will be going back to sleep and then working <laughs> on my studying for my sim <laughs> while, <laughs> while you guys are out gallivanting in Asia. Anyways, thanks to all of our friends and contributors for your support and for joining the conversation. We'll see you next week. And in the meantime, stay aviation tough. This has been the Next Trip Podcast. Visit nexttripnetwork.com for information about previous episodes, trip reviews, aviation photos, and other aviation-related content. This is your show, so search for The Next Trip on Twitter and let Doug and Drew know what you want to talk about. Not on Twitter? You can also email them at nexttrip.podcast at gmail.com. Please consider leaving a review wherever you download your podcasts. It will help other listeners like you discover this show. Good day and welcome to Boarding Pass 220, operating on February 12, 2024. This is Drew, an airline ops manager and aspiring 172 pilot. Did you change that? I didn't, no. Okay, all right. Someone, um, uh, someone's in our, someone hacked us. <laughs> well, <laughs> Put I that in there. Wrong. I did not so change knows. that. Okay. All right. Well, I'm here with my buddy, Doug, an airline pilot. Let's start that again. I don't know. I okay. guess I put that. You did. Yeah. But we're going to, we're going to be, <laughs> if we get a little crazy, you're going to have to be like, <laughs> what, what time is it there? It's 8, 8, 8 p.m. in the evening. <clears throat> 8 p.m. Okay. So all right. <laughs> um, all right.